0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome back, everyone, to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, the second of two parts, I visit with my dear friend Tom Wurge, Professor Emeritus in the English Department at the University of Notre Dame. Tom shares some beautiful insights into the classic work, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I hope you enjoy this podcast recorded at Tom's home near the campus of Notre Dame. When, when, we, uh, when the ghost of Christmas past takes them back to a set of memories, some of them are terribly painful. Some of them are so sweet and, and right. lovely. Right. Um, we do, uh, those memories <clears throat> do give credence to your wonderful description of, of um, you know, the, the, the pain of childhood, the suffering that children at the time might well have endured. So can you talk a little bit about the most salient uh, elements of young Scrooge's uh, difficult childhood.
1: Yeah, well, I think that you get the feeling that um, when Fan says to him, um, "You can, you can come home now." Father is everything has changed, you know. Father is can't remember exactly what adjective she used, but they're very, very positive, you know, and um, and I think that's what. Scrooge, uh, I mean, that's, I think, what Dickens um, missed the most. I mean, his, I I think, this trauma of being sort of, uh, in a way, banished to this blacking factory, um, where, by the way, he had young friends there. One was named Sykes, I think, and uh, yeah. another was Fagan, I believe. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, a yeah. lot of names, you know. Yeah, pop up later, yeah. Oh, they do. Yeah. They really do. Dickens is always autobiographical uh, in his own way. But I think that, uh, I, I don't think he, you know, it's not a childhood where he writes about, um, you know, being beaten or being mm. uh, or being utterly unloved. Um he doesn't write about it a great deal, actually. He does write about Christmas. He always loved, had a love of Christmas. Uh, he wrote dozens of Christmas stories. Uh, uh, Near Christmas Carol, obviously the most famous. But um, so I think that I think what really pained him the most was that he was uprooted from this idea he had that he would study hard and he would go to school and go to college, and he would become a gentleman, yeah. and he would, you know, very much like Pip yeah. in, in Expectations. Uh, and that was just absolutely um, ripped away from him, and I think he felt that his family didn't care yeah. about it. He, he just, yeah. and it is curious to figure out what just what was going on there, you know, yeah. what was happening in the family, and what was... Did they? I mean, they certainly knew where he was,
0: uh, but. Um, and by parallel, we see young Ebenezer. He's he's left alone often, right? Yes, so he is, he's, he's, and uh, and that and that's a terrible thing for a kid. Right? Yes, and his own and that loneliness that um, and it's not loneliness that he sort of copes with it's loneliness that's simply a burden right absolutely um, absolutely there is some consolation in books right he, he's a, the young young Ebenezer is quite the reader
1: yes but. there is there is that and he uh, you know and he was in a household that was not really a middle-class household and mm. I mean the usuals I mean probably the idea that he would especially in those days have been able to go to Oxford or that he could have been you know really really well educated and could have become a gentleman, you know. With, I mean, usually you don't become a gentleman; you are one, right, when you're born. Right. And uh, you know, my friends in England tell me the class system is still around. I mean, it's still, not, you know, the Brits, yeah. an amazing country, an amazing tradition. But um, but in those days, the I mean, the class class distinctions were really rigid. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so you you were what you were born into. You know, by and large, and mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, there are exceptions, certainly to be sure, as there always are, but. I think that Dickens, I think to be to be cast away, with, those are the images he uses. Right. And uh, it is still painful to read uh, those segments of his writing where he describes that world. I mean, he describes it as a world of rats,
0: mm.
1: of no adult presence except for the boss, of uh, juveniles who were scary for him. I mean, it he, he, seems pretty clear that Maybe some of these uh, youngsters in the factory have been more used to this way of life than he was. Mm. He absolutely felt um, exiled, banished, Mm. and and the real horror of it is that um, there's no real feeling, as he describes it, that things are going to get any better. His family is he feels abandoned. Mm. He feels that he's probably thinking, well, my my father is still in prison, and my mother is. Uh, is preoccupied or is working to try to uh, keep everything together. Uh, and But there's no real feeling that he's ever going to be rescued from this absolute imprisonment, which is how he sees it. Mm. And it does seem so arbitrary that he'd run into somebody, you know, some relative, like a cousin or something, whoever yeah. this guy was. Yeah. And would say to him, uh, in other words, it's not as if one day he decides, look, I'm going home. You know, I mean, th- I've had it with this. This is this is just utterly bleak because I mean, it, it just was. It, it, it his description is of really a kind of hellhole. I mean, he is utterly lost. Uh, but there's it doesn't it seems hopeless. It doesn't seem as if it's ever going to end. Yeah. And that's why I think it would be fascinating to know. Well, how how long was this? You know, would, yeah. it, was this uh, but then you realize that to a child, you know, a few days could be eternity. I mean, it does, in a sense, it really doesn't matter. You know, was it weeks? Was it months?
0: Yeah.
1: Was it more than a few months? Um, and why wasn't there any uh, visitation by the family? Why, why did the, all? Yeah. All you know is that he then leaps. He doesn't go into that. He doesn't yeah. go into how it all somehow... Began to get resolved. Uh, you get the feeling that it was never resolved, probably, and that the the next stage is you know Hungerford Stairs. That was the, what the area was called. And he said um, he said until that factory was torn down, I could not even walk past it.
0: Mm.
1: Said so I could yeah. I could never walk. I, I think the once or twice that he does, he said that he uh, broke into tears. Yeah. He just couldn't he couldn't bear it. Couldn't even bear to be near it. That's how. Visceral, you know that yeah. experience was, and um,
0: so 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 Dickens. Uh, I, I think no wonder that Ebenezer Scrooge is is so convincing. You know, uh, both as the old embittered man who's hopeless because right. he he doesn't care about the future, right. and and the young boy who's uh, abandoned, lonely. Uh, and experiencing that k- kind of hopelessness that's fairly common, right, for uh, the suffering children of the time. He does, and one of the beautiful things about the, the ghost of the Christmas past element of the story, that part of the story, right. is the, the the back and forth, the tension between hope and hopelessness. So what well, maybe you could address that a little bit, especially... You know, he, he has, first of all, there's Fan, and he, he yes. still clearly loves Fan. And then there's Fezziwig, who, right. who, you know, we all have to be scratching our heads of why, why couldn't he model himself after Fezziwig? Why did he have to become such a bitter, difficult boss right. uh, where he could have been like and then And then there's Bell. Right, yes. with whom he could have had a fantastic future. And, of course, we see her later. Yes. And uh, that is so painful for Ebenezer that to is. see his once-beloved uh, Belle right. married, faring well, you know, that's Ab- so Absolutely,
1: hard. yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think that that remains, you know, a kind of... Mystery, because of course he he's so appreciative of Fezziwig. Yeah, when he sees him again, so full of, course, of joy. Fezziwig just, utterly, just um, yes, utterly full of joy. Yeah. And so the messenger says, "Well, why, you know, why do you like that? You know, what's so good about that?" And he, of course he's brought up short again, right? Yeah, and like the, um, you know, are there no prisons? Are there no workers? He's reminded yeah. of his. Um, I think the hopelessness just. Um, uh, wins out, I think, in part just because he, apart from fan, he doesn't see very much around him. Uh, you know, it's one of the paradoxes of the Brits. I, I have British friends, and I, I can never quite figure this out, but they all go off to boarding school, you know, they, off, they when they're young. Yeah. They, they're all... I, boy, I would have hated... I mean, I can't even imagine that, and I really can't. And Dickens, I can't imagine
0: having gone to boarding school. I can't imagine sending my children to boarding school. Okay,
1: you went to boarding school. No, you, you, I, I no, can't imagine. No, no, it
0: just uh, right. it's, uh, uh, very, very it, painful it, even to think it,
1: about. It. It, well, yeah, it <laughs> is. You know, you know. I've got the best essay on um, uh, on that tradition is uh, George Orwell. I mean, he was sent. To, he despised it. I mean, he absolutely despised it. Said you know that the teachers were uh, you know sadistic and it was I mean he just absolutely sees it as uh, as hellish yeah. and um, and yet then in, in an essay on Dickens he says well when we read Dickens we read um, Nicholas Nickleby where you have a really evil uh, the boarding
0: school from hell
1: right? the boarding school from hell yes and the headmaster from hell and. Um, and then Orwell says, uh, uh, just one of the best descriptions ever, Dickens had it, absolutely right. Then he says, we read David Copperfield, and, uh, and Copperfield finds himself in a different boarding school. And it's fine. Everything is great. Everything is really good. And, and Orwell says, now look, if you're a politician and you're running on a plank of getting rid of boarding schools, how do you explain this? And Orwell says, you don't. Because the difference is that the people in the good boarding school have good hearts. They're good people. And so what Dickens is saying is that it's not always necessarily the institution itself. It's the goodness of the human heart. And yeah. uh, Orwell went on to say that what Dickens is really after is, what he really despises is a certain expression on the human face. Yeah. Complacency, smugness, um, arrogance. Um, Belittling others, all of all of those things, uh, and uh, but he says on the other hand, if I'm running to uh, for a council seat, I, I it's hard to say. Well, we all have to be converted; we, our hearts have to be made better. But he he says on the other hand, it's not it, it's not superficial. There's something yeah. very powerful and very yeah. good in that. And so I think that uh, basically the problem is that he he doesn't seek out anyone to alleviate. His suffering, <clears throat> he is uh, becomes <clears throat> too selfish for the woman he loves. You can't quite, you know, leap over that barrier, and um, and so <clears throat> he gives in. I think to um, maybe what Lincoln would call the worst angels of our nature. You know, until he does have that awakening, and I think here is where Dickens is that one with Orthodox Anglicans and. Methodists, that we need grace. We need the grace of God yeah. to to awaken from our slumber or our wretchedness. Yeah. We really do. We don't. It's not a natural thing for us to feel contrition mm. or to apologize. Dickens knew how difficult it was for anyone to apologize for anything, because you're admitting you're wrong, right? You're yeah. admitting you're fallible. You know, you're you're um, you know you're capable of being misguided and. Um, and so you, you, you really need God's grace. And, of course, the Methodists were very big on that. You know, John Wesley. Um, it's really God's grace. This is a time of, uh, of course, the slaver, slavery is still around. Um, John Newton, the author of right of um, uh, Amazing Grace, was a slave trader. You know the yeah. story about Newton? You know, yes, yeah, so, okay, a wonderful you know, story. Yeah, a yeah, great story. You know, uh, he uh, goes up in a thunderstorm and he's... Cursing God, and the mate says he should not do that. That's, and he is again seemingly very dramatic, uh, but that he changes his life entirely. Right? Wrote about two hundred hymns, if I'm not mistaken. The most famous of which, of course, was Amazing Grace. But we need grace, and that's where his conversion is so real. You know, he does a lot of things after he has awakened. You know, but mainly he is connecting himself to other people Mm. (coughs) and caring about them. The little Mm. kid, and get the turkey, you know. uh, Yeah. And uh, uh, his family, of course. He goes to church. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that he does. Dickens doesn't describe
0: that, but he does go to church. And he he doesn't stop being a man of commerce. That's true. So so as you were talking about the... um, a good boarding school will be good because of the good hearts of those who who teach and and administer the school. Right. So the the quality, the, qual- <clears throat> the qualitative experience that we have of a particular business or a particular businessman will depend upon his spiritual state. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Dickens. Uh, Dickens was
1: not. Inherently anti-capitalistic, I don't think. I mean, he was he was anti- laissez-faire. He thought there should be regulation, mm-hmm. certainly without a doubt. But uh, but no, he was uh, he knew that commerce was important. I mean, practically killed himself at the end of his life. You know, he became a a reader. He would read from his works and pull in huge audiences, and that's really how he made a living. I mean, along with royalties and things like that. But he uh, but he would he would cry at his own his own scenes when he would read them. <laughs> he would, he really would, and it was not an act. Mm-hmm. I mean, the word, the word is, is there, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, very, very powerful uh, indeed. And he, um, you know, who really loved this uh, book was Leo Tolstoy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Tolstoy thought it was one of the best things Dickens had written. And in this wonderful essay called, What is Art?, Tolstoy says that um, uh, there are two things that characterize what he calls religious art, true art. He said, uh, the one hand is that the coming of Christ changed literature forever because what it meant is that writers no longer had to write about kings and queens and aristocrats and glorious people. Uh, They could write about the lowly about the limited, about the forgotten, about mm. the people who were... And he names all of these people in uh, in the Bible, in, in Scripture, who were ordinary, basically, and just, mm. you know, common people. He thought that that was what changed literature forever. The other is, he says, what true religious art does is it has the capacity of bringing everyone together, in solidarity, in communality. He says that true religious art brings to everyone uh, the joyous gladness of a communion. So it's very mystical, mm. and he names uh, Christmas Carol, one of the primary books mm. that does that. Great admiration for uh, for Dickens, and so what you see certainly at the ending is just this joyousness, right? This love, which has a kind of plenitude about it, right? A kind of um, no longer is he dividing things, you know. Uh, um, into small pieces. he recognizes that um, uh, the more love you have and the more you give away, the more abundant it is you know, for right. everyone. I mean that's the kind of joyful mm. recognition that he's come to. And one of the things I always love about is the line about um, to Tiny Tim he became a second father mm. because that's of course a vision that of love is responsibility. It's not just love as ecstasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just feeling this ecstasy, right, wherever he goes, and he's dancing. And he, his nephew, they make their peace, and his nephew's wife, and the whole th- the familial vision is very, very strong. Mm-hmm. But it's that idea of becoming a father to mm-hmm. the child. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Karmazov, if you remember, Zosima's brother Markel is dying, and Markel says. Uh, if only all could be responsible for all, Mm. we would live in paradise.
0: Mm.
1: And he says that just before he dies, you know, Mm. and Zosima is very, obviously very, very moved by it. Mm. And so Tolstoy saw this narrative as what he calls religious art, which for him is the highest form of art. And um, Tolstoy, you know, could be incredibly... um, uh, difficult, you know, to deal with. I mean, he was known for being intractable in some things. Uh, he loved simplicity. He always wanted to be a peasant, but the peasants thought he was a lousy peasant. They re- they really did. I mean, they didn't say that because he had this estate, right? And he would work with the serfs, you know, he would go out into the fields. They'd roll their eyes. I mean, they loved the guy. They loved the guy. But the thing is, he, he wanted to try everything and in his mid 80s, he gets in the uh, he gets uh, goes to the railway station, and uh, sets off on a journey to find out the meaning of life. He says, and then he doesn't really get very far. He Dies at one of the railway stations where he stopped. But uh, he had his quarrels with Dostoevsky, uh, but he brought along a copy of um, uh, I think it was Crime and Punishment and Karamazov. So had those in his little. Okay, so he had great respect for Dostoevsky. He was annoyed at him because it, toward the end of Karamazov, remember, the devil appears and mm-hmm. the devil says, I love reading Tolstoy. Now, Tolstoy was not, he was not amused by him. <laughs> Tolstoy could be very crotchety about things like that. Oh, but that's, but he, uh, so funny. It, it is so funny. He yeah. he figured Dostoevsky couldn't resist, you know. Uh, but he, uh, so he could be a curmudgeon without a doubt. Um, but he, he thought, and, and when you think about the ending of, of Christmas Carol, I mean, you think about um, the uh, idea of bringing people together and, and true caritas, right, true charity. There's a lot of references to charity, giving money, but, but this is selflessness, this is real
0: charity, agape, this is the real, the real thing. Because it's uh, why because Scrooge is now investing himself in other people with with his time with his love with his his paternal care as and not just giving money but actually being a father being an uncle etc. Yes, being a, being a good boss, a good-hearted boss. Yeah, I think it's it's really twofold. The one is the recognition
1: that the world uh, that the spiritual world is real.
0: Mm.
1: That we don't live in a world that is purely materialistic. I don't think even Marx believed that. You know, Marx always claimed he was totally scientific and totally materialistic, but he was also Jewish. And I think Marx, something of that remains. You know, when Marx talks about the withering away of the state, in a way he's talking about the apocalypse, I think. Something uh, the the Jewish apocalypse, or uh, partly the Christian uh, apocalypse. Uh, I think that... um, so I mean, to really live as if the only reality is purely material, it, that it, it always will come up short. I think that that's one thing. And then the other, as you said, is the recognition that uh, that um, we need other people. That mm-hmm. we prefaces I, and even though Descartes was, you know uh, fond of saying that everything begins with the I, you know, with the, the Cartesian, uh, you know, it really doesn't. I mean, little child in the crib, which I think Descartes would admit, um, uh, child in the crib is certainly aware, not just of, uh, let's say, uh, her own infant needs, but of the person who comes, ideally, when, mm. when the child, so the we, the yeah. we is, is there from the outset, and, um, Walker Percy says uh, somewhere he's got a great line where he says we are neither um, how does he put it we are neither angels in heaven uh, nor organisms in a laboratory but wayfaring creatures somewhere between
0: mm-hmm.
1: always like that. <laughs> that's a great line the, yeah wayfaring yeah. creatures somewhere between so so for for Dickens it's the wayfaring you know mm-hmm. and the final blessing of Tiny Tim I think it's simultaneously a prayer mm-hmm. it's a benediction. Mm -hmm. it's a blessing it's all of those things Mm -hmm. and the fact that Dickens says he doesn't he attributes that to Tiny Tim that's his line Mm -hmm. so the incarnation once again I think is you know um, Chesterton says the amazing you know the the incarnation is where extremes meet you know you put together two things of a a helpless infant uh, and a strength that sustains the stars Mm -hmm. How do you how do you put those two together? Uh, it's uh, it's a great mystery, and I think that was really at the heart of Dickens's vision of childhood. You know, whole books have been written about the child in Victorian uh, in the Victorian times, and you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes about Little Eva, and and very often the child dies. It's the dying of the child that is so uh, heartrending and so uh, you know and so difficult to uh, to deal with. And uh, when little Eva dies in uh, Uncle Tom's cabin, uh, you know, she, uh, Stowe says that, um, you know, why does the child die young? Well, it's because uh, they're part of a band of angels that are coming and they they, they teach us uh, about uh, the next life and they are messengers, you know, so the mm-hmm child, almost by definition, is an angelic messenger, you know, as as well. And of course, you know, Stowe lost children of her, you know, she had a child who died. And, you know, as you know, I mean, if we lived in that time, um, we all would have had brothers and sisters who would have died. And, sure. you know, Twain and his wife had four children and three of them died mm-hmm. before he did. Very, very uh, common. I think Cotton Mather, I think I'm right on this, He was married three times. Uh, He had 17 children. And I think this is right that 15 of them died before he did. Mm. And the thing is that in those days, too, it's not as if that was something you could get over. You just didn't. You know, Samuel Sewell, the early New England Puritan, walks past his cemetery where his children are buried. I think five of them. And he says, uh, basically, it just never... Could never walk past there without grieving for you. Yeah. You know, you you don't, you don't accept it as a part of life. That's mm-hmm. just natural. You know, mm-hmm. it's painful. The grief is, um, grief is the price we pay for love, mm-hmm. as Owen once said. And so, uh, but I think it's very important that the last reference is really a reference to, to the child. You know, mm-hmm. to Tiny Tim. Uh, I think that's very, um, uh, very important. And I think that's why Dickens. Was able to laugh as much as he was when he was hurtling through the street. I mean, must have been a sight. So Dickens could walk thirty miles, no problem, hmm. absolutely no problem, and through some of the worst parts of London as well yeah. as you know the, the best parts. And uh, so the child remains, you know, central. Not just I think autobiographically, but what the autobiography does is to give him a firsthand knowledge of what it's like to be alone what it's like to feel abandoned you know and uh, so there's a tremendous degree of empathy in uh, in dickens uh everywhere and 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 a great degree too uh andrew of his you know his awareness of his own limitations yeah. his, his guilt over the way he treated his wife yeah. you know he Falls in love with this actress, uh, and uh, but that never went anywhere. He was he was very driven. I think he, he saw his own death. You know, he anticipated. I think his own death. He, he um, certainly wrote a good deal uh, about death because you know that right in those days you'd be. It's pervasive. It really is
0: pervasive. These are all such beautiful comments. I was really moved by your weaving several sources together and and helping us to see um, more clearly how the story helps us understand the human condition and how we all need each other. We're all responsible for each other. If we let that reflect back on the time when young Scrooge lets Bell go or Bell lets him go, I mean, sort of a give and a take, right? It is, yes. But I think some students would be quick to say, it was all about the money, and there's no doubt that the money's a factor. I mean it's very much sure. a growing factor for young sure. Scrooge, and the old Scrooge has accrued all this wealth and he's tucked it away and he and he keeps it away from others. Mm-hmm. Uh, he keeps it away from himself. It's very strange yeah. at the same time, uh, you describe so beautifully how uh, we're all dependent on each other and and we 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 get that in the in the redemptive awakening. That Scrooge has, he realizes, of course, this is this is the way to live. This is the the way, the the countercultural way, the the way against the culture of Jacob Marley and the, the old way of doing business. We have to do a business a new way. We have to live in a new way. So when when he lets Bell go, do you, do you think that there's there's something of, uh, sort of the opposite of of being responsible for one another? He can't be dependent on anyone. Right. right? It's like right. it's been too painful to to want to go home to father uh, and fan, uh, but he's been left alone. He's had to go it alone. He's had to create a life. And would this account maybe for why he lets go, uh, where he doesn't follow Fezziwig, why he you know, sort of lets Bell go? Is he just can't give himself over to that? It's yeah. too risky or something.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I really do. I think that it's. Um the you know when you have people who are really in vain but who can't make uh, any kind of human um, relationship um, work, there's always the insistence that I don't need anyone. Mm. That's always the phrase. I think yeah. almost always I don't need anyone. And if life is nothing but material, if if life is simply money, although as you said, it's very. Paradoxical. It's not as if Scrooge spends a lot of money on himself. No, he
0: doesn't go out and buy beautiful things. He, he hardly has anything. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, in the in the in the in the future, we see that when he when he dies, they, they give away what his curtains. Yeah, and the his, curtains, uh, the, the sheets, the, the linens that are on his body. <laughs> it's a That's about it. Because it yeah, he has a cup, a spoon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. nothing. Not no. a You're right.
1: No, he. I think that um, that I think. The illusion there is that you're going to live forever, that you'll some there'll be a time when you can when you can grab your hordes of money and you do whatever people would do with money. I don't you know it's only money, but um, but so the recognition that he's not going to live forever, that you know I mean whose gravestone is that? Hey, you know yeah. it's yours. Uh, that that's why it's so it's so uh, jarring. Because I don't think he thinks about that part of it. He, he, he doesn't. I think you hit the key there when you say he doesn't want to be dependent on anyone, not on anyone. Even Bell, doesn't matter who to, you, know, he, you know. He's he's totally self-sufficient, self-reliance. You know, um, and uh, but self-reliance can be a very um, dangerous thing. It it can uh, it can. Um, You know, when Tocqueville came to America, he said uh, uh, that uh, he has great respect for uh, democracy. He thinks democracy is a wonderful form of government, and he thinks America is very much on the right track. But, he said, there is a kind of obverse to uh, democracy, and and he says that it can can have the effect of cutting off human beings from each other, and the effect of... um, Engendering a tremendous sense of loneliness. Tokel says that. And, you know, you think about characters like Gatsby, you know, or you think about, you know, about, uh, or, or Scrooge, or um, it can engender a sense of, um, uh, if you take self-reliance to the extreme, it, it, it can engender a sense of um, real isolation and real loneliness. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so terrifying about megalomaniacs, You know, like Hitler, for example. I mean, they, Hitler never wanted to be called our Fuhrer or my Fuhrer. He discouraged that utterly, the Fuhrer. Mm. He said, I don't want to belong to anyone. He said that. Mm. And here's somebody who is absolutely um, uh, living in a world of theory and letting the theory obliterate the actuality of uh, his life. you know, mm-hmm. The only Jewish people Hitler knew personally were people he had tremendous respect for. The doctor, Dr. Bloch, who took care of his mother when she had cancer. He was a very genuine fellow and a very good doctor and Jewish. And Hitler we- uh, Bloch said he never saw anybody weep so long over the death of a parent as Hitler did. And Hitler said to him, I, I will never forget you. You, what you've done for my mother is um, beyond belief, and I, I'm so grateful," he said to, to him. No, it's Jewish, mm-hmm. and and then Hitler is saying that the Jew is the curse of the world. The Jew is the is the um, originator of all malevolence, of all evil. And the the people he brought his little watercolors to when he was in Vienna were Jewish. They would sell them for him, mm-hmm. and he, they were very honest. They were very fair. We really liked them. Liked him tremendously. So here's somebody who is absolutely saying, you know, I'm not going to let life interfere with my theory. Mm. Uh, And so what do you do? You obliterate maybe all the memories of... uh, Although later he did warn Bloke. He did did get in touch with him at one point. He was able to escape something. um, But in other words, I think that... um, I think Scrooge thinks that he's going to live forever... And I think that you know, if life is solely material, if there is no such thing as love, if God is nothing more than a gaseous vertebrate, um, then you might as well compile money because that nothing else has any meaning, nothing else has any significance. You know, so that I think the deeper uh, painful, the deeper horror of Scrooge's um, plight is not only that he. Um, he likes things because he doesn't like things. He doesn't buy anything. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to be to appreciate things. It's this absolute conviction that materiality is all that exists. There is, absolutely is nothing else, and that's why you know Marley must be just a bit of an underdone potato. You know, and, I mean, it sounds ludicrous, but I, I suppose if you push it to, to its logical extreme,
0: that's yeah. But that's, here come the messengers. Yes. and as you put it they're, all, they're messengers as in angels and, and right. here come memories right? And, uh, and then here comes the reality of the people in his life who are right there in, in the office every day with Bob right. with his, his family little Tim right. and of course Frederick whom right. he's neglected out of um, you know an ill-conceived bitterness yes. uh, over the death of, of Fan his beloved sister right. Frederick's mom Right. And these are real people, right there, yes. and uh, and all those souls that are floating outside the window; those are real. Those are real souls. Those are real people too, who've lived in London. And uh, I always thought that that was also an indication that you know Scrooge uh, awakens to uh, not only the the life hereafter, but also that it's. Uh, we're responsible for those immediate in our lives, and then there's the there's the the social community we belong to. Absolutely, and that um, these choices are are pretty important. That's and, right. Uh, that's right. They that's have right. consequences for the for the community at large, for the common good. Yeah, know? very very critical. I yeah. mean, no no question. I think that um,
1: yeah, I think that's why Dickens was so. Um, Joyful when he wrote the book, yeah. he you know I think that he um, uh, you know had been just enduring all of these, uh, the terrible wastefulness of the children dying yeah. and the horror of it and and being abused. I mean the uh, idea of um, lowering little kids into chimneys. I mean yeah. come on. Yeah. Uh, because the Industrial Revolution clearly did great things. I mean, there were very good things that were that came with it that made lives better in the long run, you mm-hmm. know, for people. But the price, you know, the price that, that was paid. And um, when you think about it, I think our own working laws didn't treat uh, children uh, rightly until the 1930s or so. You know, we had kids yeah. working in silver mines, 12 years old. I mean, uh, they're... You know some feel that there wasn't that very often uh, the whole idea of childhood for many didn't exist yeah. you, you grew up and you went to work you know, and and at whatever age and so I think that um, you know this kind of rediscovery of as it were of childhood for Dickens was a rediscovery of um, of salvation and I think always echoing for him would have been, you know, unless you become as a little child, you know, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a line in Christmas Carol where he says, you know, the founder of Christianity came to us as a child. And it's very, very explicit there. Or, you know, suffer the little children to come unto me. Mm-hmm. I I always love that line because, you know, at that time the, word, the verb suffer meant allow. Allow the little children to suffer. So the... The idea that there could be something about suffering that allows us to understand things is, is very powerful. I think you know the idea of, I mean, not that you am, you want suffering, but that suffering can teach us a great deal. I, as it teaches Scrooge about yeah. you know the suffering of uh, the family and of um, and
0: of Tiny Tim. And the and the charity, the the true selfless love, can't happen unless we allow. Others to get close, yes. and, and then we have to take that risk That's and right. invest ourselves, and you know, and you know, and, and people might well not forgive Scrooge, you know. So it's hard to imagine how um, Mrs. Cratchit is going <laughs> to yes. be willing to have a, a cup of cheer each <laughs> year with the <laughs> boss, true. you know, or how Frederick's family and extended a set of friends and family uh, could yeah. possibly embrace him. Uh, Given what he's done year in and year out, that's very true. But uh, that's, very that's true. also the the glorious other side of it, right? The possibility for forgiveness and, it is. and reconciliation.
1: It is. You know, it's such a deep. You know, as re uh, re-reading this short book on Lincoln, which is so moving because his um, uh, he lost a brother and a sister um, died when they were young, uh, drinking this uh, kind of a milkweed. You know, the cows would. The cows would eat this weed, and they were impervious to it, but it was poisonous, mm. and so they died from drinking milk. Essentially, both of them, and it was very, very bitter. His father had no use for education; he was very um, thought you should just work the farm. And he and he and Abraham did not get along, and uh, at all. And it was almost impossible for Lincoln to write about his childhood. You know, when he was running for president, you know his. People wanted him to write a pamphlet or something. Like that. He, it was, it was almost impossible because uh, he had great love for his mother, Nancy Hanks, uh, who died, I think, when she was thirty, um, of poisoning. You know, uh, the same kind of poisoning, and that was a tremendous loss for him. And um, and her graveyard apparently, or her tombstone became desolate, and the grave became. Uh, overgrown, and the person who restored it was um, Studebaker here, or their guy, Studebaker in, in town. He was a friend of, um, get this right, I think. He was a friend of Thomas Lincoln, the one child, one Lincoln child who survived. Um, but Lincoln never forgave his father for his father's um, hostility toward education. Father apparently was hostile toward him. When he wanted to go to school, or he would read, you know, instead of where, although he worked very, very hard on the farm, uh, but when his father died, his father died about um, eighty miles away from where, from where uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln was, and he want, he asked him to come to his um, deathbed, and he wouldn't, mm-hmm. and you know, and Lincoln was a very forgiving person. I mean, he was, Lincoln was, you know, gosh, our country wouldn't be here, clearly, without Lincoln, but that was something, whatever happened there, there was something unforgivable. And, you know, and of course, 80 miles was a long way to go. Back in the 19th century, probably would have, he wasn't president yet, but it would have taken him long. But no, you're right, uh, without that, uh, you always got the feeling, you know, had Fan lived with Scrooge, have been a very different person. Yeah. I think he would have.
0: Yeah.
1: The feeling she was just goodness and yeah. In the Alistair film version where she comes in and she's so happy. And you know father's good and you can go home now and when she uh, appears they play uh, Barbara Allen, you know. And I I would just cry. I, would yeah. cry. I mean I uh, you know, she was such a beautiful young yeah. girl, and she loved Scrooge so much. You know, she wanted her brother to come home. You know, and but that, but in that, in that one line about you know, father is so good, or father, you know, it's like heaven or something. That you know, that was never true. And I think uh, it's something that Scrooge. I mean, it's something that um, uh, you know, that Dickens often must have wished you know if only things had been different yeah. and uh you know he uh but on the other hand you know you got that great paradox that very often really great writers suffer mm-hmm. tremendous pain yeah. and they and that's in a sense what he was always writing about yeah.
0: in one form or another yeah. and you know i think the book works in no small measure because um you know he regrets some things he did, and and there's no going back. He right. he can't recover the lost love for Belle. That's right. The life that would have been. That's it's right. over. Absolutely. But the life that is today and tomorrow is still possible if he if he turns in the right direction. Yes. And that beautiful joy that you described earlier is is really is just evident, uh, so powerfully and so beautifully at the end of the story, and I suppose. Because of the joyful ending, that's why Dickens could call it a, a carol, right?
1: Yes, yes. It has five of those what are called staves, which which carols have. And um, yes, I think so. And, and remember the reference is to um, uh, when he's thinking about something uh, at one point, and the spirit says, uh, what are you thinking about? He, he said, well, I was just thinking that, there were these uh, youngsters singing a carol, you know, and I, yeah. I wish I had, you know, he wishes now he had given them something, right, yeah. instead of frightening them away or <laughs> whatever, you know, frightens, <laughs> frightens everyone. I mean, yeah. nobody's going to get close to him, yeah. you know, at all. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, this, was, this was one Tolstoy was absolutely sure of. He was so curmudgeonly that he claimed that Beethoven's night uh, was not a work of religious art. It did not bring people together. You think of the Ode to Joy. And, you know, and people would say, what are you talking about? You know, he would aggravate people because he would have these amazingly iconoclastic opinions about things. But that was my take on it, What little I know, uh, with Tolstoy. I don't know Tolstoy very well, but um, I think it was more that the people who went to hear uh, the concerts were wealthy. I mean, you didn't go. Common, ordinary folk, you know, peasants didn't go to concerts. So I'm thinking maybe what's really in 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 his mind is, uh, uh, you know, if the if the serfs on my estate wanted to go, you know, to the concert with the, no, there's no way. So I think that's really what he would because uh, because he would always stick to his guns. That's what he says, you know, and. Some people will say, "What do you mean? Are you mad? How can that not be a way of bringing people together?" Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. <laughs> Beethoven is not, you know. So, but you're right. I yeah. think that 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 unalloyed joy uh, was also something that that Dickens knew of. I mean, he, that side of him was, you know, as he as he says, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, that side of me is the side uh, that person in me is the person that. Um, that lives rightly and morally and happily. I mean, clearly that's the way he wanted to live, you know. But he is, uh, you know, there is darkness, and everyone is capable of, um, of that. And I don't, I don't know if I mentioned to you, but the last thing that Dostoevsky said after all this, after he's quoting Dickens, there are two people inside of me, and and Dostoevsky said, only two? <laughs> <laughs> which is which is really beautiful, yeah, you because know? yeah. I think Dostoevsky is thinking about, hey, we are com- human beings are complex, yeah. we are complex, and just a quick anecdote I wanted to give you, uh, uh, give to you that whenever we would, um, very often April Fool's Day, I would enjoy playing a trick on my students, and I even though it's a horrible thing to do, and very often would be in the in the in the one class would be reading Crime and Punishment. And um, so I would come in and I would say, look, I know this semester, you know, it's like half over and everything, but you're going to have to write one more paper. You know, you're going to have to write, because um, the department wants everybody who's teaching this level, of course, to to have a long research paper. Uh, I mean, they would, the rage that they would be feeling, I mean, not just, not just shock, but... Yeah. And so, and it was very hard for me to keep a straight face. it was very <laughs> difficult and I, so here's what I here's what I would like you to do. you know, I said it probably should make it about maybe all the other papers will still be due, but then uh you know uh, I'd make it about like fifteen or eighteen pages, and I want you to do you know quite a bit of research and so forth, and you have to, and they would just be fuming and then I would say April fool and I would say the point is, my point is, we're reading Dostoevsky, is to show you that everyone is capable of murder. Every, <laughs> everyone is capable of murderous instincts. Because I said, you know, if one of you had a pistol, I know you wouldn't, you know, probably wouldn't do it, but I mean that's what Dostoevsky, Dante and Dostoevsky, they are always about saying we are all capable of the greatest joy and, you know, the greatest despair and anger and goodness and love and all of those things. But you you don't want to um, push these characters outside your experience. Ah, oh, nobody could feel that way or nobody would do, do this or, or do that. Or, uh, and, uh, you know, you have to see that we're, uh, we're capable of, you know, great heights and de- depths and, yeah. you know, hopefully that we are, you know, we have good people around us we all need guides really? when you were talking about the guides hey that's um, best essay I ever read on Dante it was written by a by a, a prof of mine and it was called uh, Ulysses Ulysses Journey uh, or Ulysses um, uh, Ulysses in, is in the Inferno something like Ulysses Loss and the Journey Without a Guide the, 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 the problem Ulysses really has is um, now that's the Odyssey, of course, rather than you know the Iliad that uh, um, that she's working on. But um, is that he has no guide? We all need a guide. Mm-hmm. We need a guide, and um, and eventually, of course, the you know for Scrooge, right? The um, you know the the angels are his guide. Mm-hmm. He he would not have awakened and done this on his own. You know he just he just wouldn't. I think Dickens really believes that that there has to be. Whatever we call it, it is a form of divine intercession. It is a form of grace, and without that, we really are, uh, you know, we really are lost. You know, we we just start, we become too confused or too self-absorbed or whatever. And um, with that, and very often, certainly for Dostoevsky, and I, I think, I think uh, very much for uh, Dickens too that. Um, that divine intercession comes in the form of a person hmm. it could be anything right it, it wouldn't have to be a person it could be something dramatic but I always think of John Newton on that ship in the middle of the storm you know it's the mate who says to him you, you don't curse out God like that you know it's just not you know and so had he been standing alone in the storm it might have been different you know, it wasn't just the, just the storm so um it's a great story. Never been out of print, you know. Yeah. They do it in Chicago every Christmas. Yeah, like the Goodman. Yeah, uh, it's something you, you somehow you you never get tired of it. You know, it's somehow so, such an eternal message. You know, yeah. it, and so it it hits very very close to home. Yeah. I think it really does. You know.
0: Yeah, it does, and it and it has those those very powerful central human experiences of that we identify with childhood, uh, with um, the suffering of being abandoned yeah uh, with uh, the confusion over and and the the break of real love uh, and uh, right. lost opportunities right. regret yes uh, friendship that we suddenly discover sh- it was not what it should have been but right. maybe there's still a possibility for, for turning turning around and changing sure so yeah. uh, the Dickens has given us a great book and I think Absolutely. I think your beautiful language about it, needing guides uh is is so true and and goes to the heart of what it means to be a student a lifelong yeah. student to learn and to to seek out sources of wisdom and all of us uh, at kane academy are so grateful for you you're there's this magnificent guide i'm for grateful us.
1: for the academy No, the pleasure really is all mine you're yeah. doing great work i'm glad to be a part of it
0: great well i look forward to the next discussion thanks again so much sure
1: earth on Christmas day on Christmas
0: thanks everyone for listening to this episode of classics the song we used in this episode is I saw three ships by Ben DeVries from his album the Christmas mixtape 2010. I hope you enjoyed the entire podcast with Tom Wurge and have found a new love for Charles Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol. We have more great episodes coming soon, so please join me again and bring all your friends and family. My colleagues and I at Keenan Academy wish you all the peace and joy of Christmas. Until next time, this is Andrew Zorneman, your host. I look forward to meeting you again on Classics.